So we're in James chapter 4 today. We'll be thinking about the first 12 verses, but I want to read for us the first 10 in just a moment. <laughs> so a while back, CareerBuilder.com surveyed more than 1,000 HR managers, and among other things, they asked what reasons employees give for being late to work. So most of them are pretty standard, traffic, oversleeping, and weather were the big three. But there were some um, creative ones as well. <clears throat> One person said, I was here, but I fell asleep in the parking lot. So I guess that counts, I don't know. Or this one, my false eyelashes were stuck together. An astrologer warned me of a car accident on the highway, so I took the back roads. And then there was the guy, the guy who was late because he had morning sickness. <laughs> you know, there's always a reason, and the reason somehow is always external to me. It's not my character, it's my eyelashes. It's not me, it's the accident on the highway. And if I'm engaged in a conflict with you, it is certainly not me. Therefore, it must be you. It started in the garden when Adam blamed Eve for his sin. You, you could be excused in thinking that God didn't make us out of dust, but out of Teflon, because nothing sticks. As James writes chapter 4, he's aware of a problem that threatens the church. It is, in fact, a major reason he wrote the letter. And everything so far has been leading up to this section. James has already raised, we've already seen, issues of pride and of unkind and injurious speech. And now we see why. Because there are conflicts going on in the church. These conflicts have been exhibited in cutting speech and in an us-against-them posture, which he now addresses head-on. The principal tactic of the enemy of God has always been to divide the friends of God. As soon as those friends begin to think of each other as enemies, he's won the day. So let me read our text, the first 10 verses, James chapter 4. Today I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. So that's what you'll see on the screen. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it's to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he's made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. There's some difficult things to understand in this passage. Things that have divided scholars and are really worthy of our attention. So verse 5 is the most difficult verse in the entire letter. There are at least three different ways you can take it. 
That, and, and all of that is really interesting stuff, but I'm not going to spend what little time we have going into it. If you want to investigate this passage more thoroughly, come to Go Deep at Big B Coffee on, on Wednesday at 645. And we'll go more into some of these things a little more deeply and look at how they apply to our lives. So James begins the section with a question. From whence come the quarrels and fights in your group? Of course, the answer on the tip of everyone's tongue is from the other guy, because we're made of Teflon. But James knows better. Blaming the other guy doesn't get to the heart of what's going on. And how could it, really? The other guy blames you. Nor will it put an end to the conflicts. Imagine James is sitting in your house. So think of your living room or wherever you like to sit, in your dining room out on the, the deck or whatever. He's sitting in your house, and he knows all about the fights and quarrels you've been having. He knows all about them. And he looks you in the eye, and he says, where are these quarrels and fights coming from? And you're about to say, from him. It's his fault. But before you get the words out, he stops you with a look. And there's an awkward silence as he waits for an answer, a real answer, rather than an excuse. But the only answer you've ever really thought about, the one that you've rehearsed a thousand times, is it's his fault. But he won't let you get away with that, so you sit there nervously. And then he asks this leading question, is it not this that your passions are at war within you? Is it not this that your passions are at war within you? There are different ways to take that question, too, and we'll talk about that at Go Deep. But for now, I'll just point out that James sees the conflict originating within people, not in their situation. We blame what's going on. But James is saying this is coming from inside of you. The source is deeper. It's underground. It's in the passions or desires, or better yet, more literally, the pleasures that wage war within you, or literally in your members. The word the ESV translates as are at war has the idea of waging war or prosecuting a battle plan. So think of generals laying out the plan and then putting it into action. The English term strategize comes from this Greek word. That includes the idea of planning and carrying out a strategy to win, to beat someone else. The verb is in a participial form, which means that this strategizing to get what you want is going on continually. I say it includes the idea of planning and carrying out a strategy, but notice that it is not the individual doing the planning, but his or her passions. More precisely, his or her pleasures. The Greek word is hedane, from which we get the words hedonist and hedonism. James situates these pleasures in the war room. The strategizing starts with them. Now, that doesn't mean we're not responsible. That's not James' point at all. But because the strategizing begins with these pleasures, we're, and not so much in our mind, we're able to remain largely unaware of the maneuvering going on within us. So we feel justified in blaming others. It's his fault. We convince ourselves that the problem is almost entirely someone else's fault. And the funny thing is they're doing exactly the same thing. What does James mean by hedone, pleasures? What kind of pleasures does he have in mind? 
the pleasures of a sweet snack when you're on a diet, or the pleasures of watching an NCAA tournament game, or the pleasures of owning a new car. I suppose it could be any of these things, but let me suggest some more common ones. The pleasure of being right. What is sweeter than that? The pleasure of getting my way. The pleasure of being respected. The pleasure of using my time the way I choose. The pleasure of status or authority over others. When we find ourselves in repeated conflicts, so if you have found yourself in a repeated conflict with someone, whether at home or in some other setting, there is usually something, some pleasure like the ones I've just mentioned, that you're trying to protect. If we're serious about ending the conflicts and not merely getting what we want, we must be honest with ourselves about the pleasures we so zealously try to protect. The pleasures we're willing to fight with other people to protect. Verse 2 presents further problems for the interpreter, but however you take it, the result of these strategizing pleasures is relational trouble. So you desire, James writes, often when we're fighting, we think we can end the fight by, and I, I am really guilty of this, by giving rational explanations or leveling rational accusations. But we didn't reason our way into this fight, and we're not going to reason our way out. Our thought life is hugely important, so don't misunderstand that. We have to be renewed in our thoughts. But this is not really about thought. It's about desire. The King James usually translates the word here as lust. It denotes a powerful longing, not a rational thought. That's why reason so rarely ends fights. The hostility springs from desires that have been threatened, not from reasons that have been refuted. You desire and do not have, he writes. You desire, you lust, you want this so badly, and you don't have it, so you murder. Now, it's just possible James is talking about literal murder here. Um, quite a uh, cadre of excellent scholars think that's true. But it's pretty beyond the pale to think of church people killing people. If you want to know where that comes from, that idea, come to go deep. We'll talk about it then. But most interpreters don't take it that way. Most think this is another example of James echoing Jesus, who taught that the one who hates is making himself the same kind of sin-burdened person as the one who kills. But whichever way you read it, people were so angry, people like us, so angry and so determined to have their own way that they were hating and hurting other people. Let's pause for a moment and take in what we've just seen. The situation in the church is dire. There are skirmishes, there are wars going on, and people are getting hurt. Yet no one takes responsibility. It's always the other person's fault. The cause is clear to James, and he wants to make it clear to the people involved. It is their commitment to protect their own pleasures that's inciting them to anger and hostility, and maybe even violence. They feel they're in the right, and in their own minds, that justifies them in doing wrong. Especially the wrong, this is verse 11 and 12, we won't get into this other than just this comment, 
especially the wrong of castigating and condemning fellow church members. James says, if you're doing that, man, you are way out of line. There's something really wrong with you. The conflict is wearing them out. And they want it to stop as long as they get their own way. But what they've tried has not helped. So what have they tried? They've prayed. And what have they prayed? That's a good question. If you summarize their prayers, I think this is what you get. If you took out all the gratuitous words and religious-sounding phrases, they would amount to something like this. Oh, God, don't let him have his way. Rather, let me have mine. They sugarcoat it with a little religious topping, but that's what it amounts to. I want my way. Oh, God, I need to have my way. Instead of following their master's lead and praying, not my will, but thine be done, they're praying, not his will, but mine be done. In verse 4, James tells, us, tells them they're not getting answers because they ask wrongly or, more literally, badly. So what's bad about what they're asking? What's bad is they just want to get their way to protect their pleasures, the pleasure of being right or of looking good or of having power or using their time the way they want whatever it might be, that is not a prayer that can be made in Jesus' name. And therefore, it's not a prayer that receives the desired response. James points out the situation, anger and hostility in relationships. He uncovers the cause, the pleasures that strategize in your members, within you. Pleasures that direct your behavior, shape your thinking in a way that only God ought to be doing. Then he reveals the stakes, which are frightfully high. If you treat your pleasures as though they're supreme, worthy of your devotion and service, you have positioned yourself as an enemy of God. He's talking to religious people here. You've positioned yourself as an enemy of God. That is not a position you want to be in. James warns, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. I think the word the NIV translates wishes maybe ought to be a little stronger. Um, Every time that word appears in its noun form, it's translated as purpose. So this is God, for example, in its noun form, this is God's purpose for you. And I think the verb here retains that sense. James is thinking of the person who's made it his or her purpose to fit in with the world, but not purpose to fit in with God. Whenever you have two people like that, in a marriage, a church, workplace, clashes are inevitable. If that's going to change, at least one of those people will need to change his or her pleasures. And that is entirely doable. Let me say that again. That is entirely doable, though most people do not care to do so. So they just go on having conflicts one after another while telling themselves it's not their fault. There's nothing I can do about it. I'm in the right. But there is something they can do about it. They can change their pleasures and desires. Some people don't even know that's possible. They think they are their pleasures and desires. This is who I am. So if their pleasures and desires were to change, they'd no longer be themselves. 
But there's much more to a person than pleasures and desires, to a larger degree than we realize. Our pleasures and desires are the result of biological and environmental conditioning. To a larger degree than we realize, they're a starting place, maybe for good, depends a lot on your parentage, your, the, your genealogy, maybe for bad, but they're a starting place that we're meant to transcend. We're not supposed to stay there. As we become mature and complete, and remember, that is the goal that James has set before us. Our pleasures and desires will change into ones that increasingly characterize the person God intends us to be. Experiencing a change in our pleasures and desires is part and parcel of being a Jesus person. If your desires haven't changed since you became one of Jesus' people, something's really wrong. See, God knows that you can't really be you and keep the desires you used to have. And as those desires change, you become more truly you. Your life becomes more complete and richer, a life of mounting joy and deepening gratitude. How does that happen? I mean, really, how does it happen? I want what I want. I can't just say I want something else when I don't. I can't change that. Well, sure you can. You already have, many times. Think about your kids and your grandkids. You take your three-year-old grandchild or child to a restaurant, and he deeply desires to lick the lid of the salt shaker. And before you know it, he's doing it. What you don't remember is that when you were three years old, you deeply desired to lick the lid of that salt shaker. But you haven't done that for years. Many of your pleasures and desires have changed over the years, and yet you're still you. Desires will change over time, but will they change in a way that reflects the completeness God intends for you? They will if you choose friendship with God and take the steps that lead to it. So verses 4 through 6 emphasize what's required. Total, unreserved allegiance to God. That's how Douglas Moo, the scholar, Bible scholar, put it. The first step is to acknowledge you don't deserve God's friendship and are neither strong enough nor good enough to maintain it. You need God's grace. So verse 6, he gives grace to people who humbly acknowledge their need. You need him. Next, you submit yourself to God. To submit is to place yourself under authority. This is not something you're going to drift into. People don't drift into placing themselves under God's authority. It's something they purpose to do. And then when your desires contradict his will, as they will certainly do sometimes, you will renounce your desires and ask for more grace. And he will give it because he gives more grace. He won't fault you for that. Then you resist the devil. Now, if you try to resist the devil before you've submitted to God, you will fail spectacularly. There's an order here, and it must be observed. People who don't observe it, who don't wholeheartedly choose God, and yet try to live a respectable religious life, those people frequently end up stuck in behaviors they're ashamed of, including fighting and quarreling 
all the time and often succumb to hypocrisy. You don't start with resisting the devil. You start with submitting yourself to God. Now remember the life of the Jesus follower is all about God. It's not about being respectable. Jesus did not say the most important command is be respectable. Rather, he said the most important one is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And so we intentionally draw near to God. We do that by talking to him, prayer, by listening to him, scripture, worshiping him, the church, serving him, good works, and more. We draw near to him. The spiritual disciplines we've been practicing for the last year as a church have that purpose. You can't make yourself a better person, but you can place yourself in a, a, a situation where God can do things in you. That's where the action is. Now, it sounds wonderful that God will draw near to us. That's not always how it feels, at least not at first. Some years ago, I was at the homecoming of one of my best friends who had been in the, the national spotlight. And when I hugged him, the, the 60 Minutes cameraman got within inches of our face. I mean, you know, you see things on TV, you don't realize what's happening. After that, I thought, those people that you read about who push some cameraman, I understand why they do that. Somebody comes and sticks something right in their face and they think they're gonna get hit. And so they react. But I, I didn't watch the segment on 60 Minutes, but I'm sure if I had, I would have noticed every blemish, seen how badly I needed a shave and a haircut, would have been embarrassed by the fraying shirt collar I had, I would have seen stuff I don't usually see. When God draws near to us, we have a similar experience. We inevitably become aware of stuff, of, of evil, selfishness, and, and moral dirt that we didn't even notice when we were apart from God. So it sounds wonderful that God will draw near us. Often our first experience is to think, yuck, when we see ourselves. We see things that, that sadden us, that surprise us, even repel us. That's why James says, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning, your joy into gloom. This is not some extraneous requirement. God isn't saying, you must make yourself wretched and gloomy if you want to be a Christian. It's more like a description of what happens when he comes near. And we see ourselves as we are. But in the long run, that's a good thing. It's a very good thing. When we humble ourselves, he gives us more grace. The more we're humbled, verse 10, the more he exalts us. The more we deal with the dirt, the more of himself he's able to give us. And we get caught up in this eddy, which seems to move two ways, deepening humility and rising glory. That doesn't happen by accident. It happens by choice. First, God's choice than ours. It happens when we choose friendship with God and plan our lives around knowing and serving him. 
So I invite you this morning to make that choice or to affirm a choice you've already made, to to step into the eddy of God's great grace, which will carry you deeper and higher than you dream possible. For our part, we choose to be God's and build our lives around him. Not just our Sunday mornings, but our lives around him. When we so choose, we quickly become aware because God draws near of something in our lives that has not been submitted to him. This is the first test of our friendship with God, what we do then. This is where being God's friend moves from dream to reality. And we choose him. And our desires begin to change. And we get caught in that swirl upwards. All right, I'll give you a moment to pray. Maybe you're aware of something. You know, the fights that go on in people's lives, they often can only think about their opponent. But it's such a sign of something that's wrong that they can do something about. If you're experiencing that, you can do something about it. Choose to do it now. Thank you, Lord, for not giving up on us. And we're amazed that you want us to be your friends. Help us now, in Jesus' name.